Tantamount Season 1 is a true crime podcast on the Washington, D.C. serial killer, the Freeway Phantom. Due to the graphic nature, it is not intended for those under the age of 18. Hello, this is Blaine Pardo. And this is Victoria Hester, co-host, co-author, and his daughter. Welcome to episode four of Tantamount, season one, The Green Vega Gang. Dad, in our last episode, you set up the stage to talk about the Green Vega Gang, beginning when they were first arrested. Initially, the arrests were of John Nathaniel Davis and Morris Warren. Let's tell the listeners about how this pack of gang rapists got connected into the Freeway Phantom investigation. Now, let me rephrase that. How they ended up dominating the Freeway Phantom investigation. Sure. Everything tied to the Green Vega gang can be pretty confusing, so I'm going to simplify this as much as possible. The arrests of Morris Warren, whose nickname was Fatsy, and John Davis were only the start of rounding up the members of this rape gang. Police learned of other members of this gang, and I'm using that word loosely here. Melvin Gray, a postal employee, Paul Fletcher, who was known by authorities as Flathead because of the distinctive shape of the back of his head, and Paul Brooks were also identified by rape victims as being members of the gang. The group had known each other in school, attending Kelly Miller Junior High together. Ironically, it was the same school that Nemo Yates had attended. Clearly, authorities could tie John Davis and Morris Warren to a majority of the crimes, and they were pursued with the most vigor. This wasn't their first rodeo with the authorities either. All had criminal records, but nothing that might indicate their involvement in a gang rape. These were tough individuals. While tied to the Green Vega gang rapes, Morris Warren and Paul Fletcher instigated several convenience store robberies in Palmer Park and Chevrolet, Maryland. In one of these robberies, Warren shot and killed the store owner, wounding several others. You have to wonder what's going through their minds. I mean, here they are, awaiting trial for numerous gang rape charges, and they figure this might be a good time to go out and rob some 7-Elevens. They were under such scrutiny, it just seemed like a bonehead move on their part. I've learned over the years there are parts of society that we will never fully understand, and these guys validate that. It was just plain stupid on their part, and made their legal issues even more complicated. Initially, they weren't even thought to be tied to the Freeway Phantom case. During a pre-trial supposition hearing, Davis's attorney, Dovey Roundtree, made a single comment that clicked with investigators. She said something along the lines of, It's obvious that the police were not looking for the Green Vega when they stopped them, Davis and Warren. They were looking for the Freeway Phantom. According to Ray Bannon, the federal prosecutor that had eventually handled the convictions of the Green Vega crimes, a D.C. detective, Virgil Hopkins, was in the court along with Detective Lewis Richardson. On a break in the trial, Hopkins made a comment along the lines of, well, we've got to look into those. What followed was the largest investigation in the history of the District of Columbia up to that time, all based on some 
off-the-cuff comment made by Dovey Roundtree in court. You have to remember the Washington MPD was under incredible pressure to close these cases. The families were routinely going to the press to keep the pressure up. They started to look into the overlap of the suspected Green Vega rapes and the Freeway Phantom murders. There was a lot of possible crossovers. The crimes took place, sometimes on the same days, in the same neighborhoods. A lot of open rape cases were potentially connected to the Green Vega gang as well, meaning they were all going to be facing a lot of jail time. So the MPD detectives formulated a plan. John Davis, the ringleader of the gang, was way too savvy to cooperate. Morris Warren, however, was seen as the weakest link. Morin let it be known that he had information the authorities would be interested in, if they were willing to bargain. Now, I'm skeptical of jailhouse confessors, especially when they receive any benefit for their cooperation. It is a system that is too easy to take advantage of. The Washington MPD was excited. This might help them close out their biggest string of unsolved murders. Cooperation might, and I stress might, give closure to the victim's families. The risk that Morris Warren might not have any useful information was pretty low. Ultimately, they decide to leverage Warren in hopes that he might give them what they wanted. For his part, Warren got quite a bit. His common-law wife-slash-girlfriend could, and I'm using air quotes here, visit him in Lurton Prison where he was held. No one that we talked to wanted to use the word conjugal visits with us, but one source acknowledged that he was having sex with her during their visits. He got out of his cell whenever he wanted to to go talk to the authorities. All he had to do was talk. Talking is what he did. He spoke of rapes, of the freeway phantom murders, feeding his keepers with just enough information to keep them intrigued. The authorities organized themselves into a task force consisting of the Washington Metropolitan Police Department, the Prince George's County Police, the Park Police, and the FBI. Morris Warren would sit in a police car and be driven to where he claimed the crimes of the Green Vega gang had been committed. Now, some of these were victims of the gang rape, but others crossed over into the same ground as the Freeway Phantom victims. I remember listening to your interview with Ray Banyan on this. They formed a caravan that went through this area. Warren would point out where they abducted someone and where they took her, etc. It's really hard to imagine this pack train of cars roaming the streets of D.C. and Maryland, but that's what they did. Morris Warren, also known as Fatsy, was calling the shots. You have to remember, D.C. had anywhere from 300 to 1,000 open rape cases at the time, depending on who was speaking to the press. This was not just a parade on his part. The task force reviewed the staggering number of open cases to see if any of those matched up with the crimes described by Warren. Some did. In other words, Warren was providing useful information to the authorities to potentially prosecute or at least close a number of open rape cases. Warren led the investigators all over southwest D.C. and Prince George's County, Maryland. He admitted that the gang was involved with the murder of Brenda Woodard. According to Warren, they had kidnapped her off the streets and taken her to a place behind the Pepsi bottling plant near the road where her body was found. He told a grand jury how the gang had assaulted and strangled her and identified where her body had been left. There were problems with the story, though. There was no mention of the note left on her body. The presumption by the investigators was that the gang's leader, John Davis, had written it. Of course, authorities already knew that Brenda had written that note herself. 
They chose to overlook the mention of the note in Warren's account, at least for now. When pressed on this, Warren claimed that he had gone to relieve himself, so perhaps the letter had been written then. And there was the issue of the physical evidence. Woodard was found with the same telltale green fibers on her body. Where had they been picked up from? According to Warren, she was the only victim that had been taken to that location. For Brenda to have picked up those fibers, she would have had to have been undressed in the same location as the other victims that had the fibers. It wasn't just Morris Warren that was contributing to the thinking that the Green Vega gang was behind the Freeway Phantom murders. One of the rape victims of the gang said that John Davis drove by a location where Brenda Woodard's death had occurred and pointed to the cops of woods behind saying, this is where I kill little girls. It didn't match up to what Morris Warren had said, but it was enough to investigators to cling on to. Now, that could have just been an idle threat, a way to maintain control over his victim. But at the time, the investigators saw it as a possible collaboration with what they were getting from Morris Warren. All of this was being presented to a grand jury, and those transcripts still remain sealed. At the same time, Melvin Gray and Cassandra Horton came forward with their own confession. Gray was a member of the Green Vega gang. Apparently, he wanted a similar deal to what Morris Warren had. After all, why should Warren be the only member of the gang to take advantage of the investigators? When investigators showed him pictures of the victims, he claimed to have been involved with Carol Spinks and Nina Moesha Yates' murders, of course implicating other members of the gang in the process. Gray's confession was full of more holes than Warren's confession. He claimed that Carol Spinks had appeared to be around 18 years old, which was far from the truth. He claimed that Warren and Paul Fletcher had helped them keep her prisoner for almost a week before killing her. Without going in through the details of Gray's confession in the murder of Nino Yates, what investigators learned was that Gray had been at work at the time of her abduction. It would have been laughable, but manpower was extended exploring his confession, manpower that could have been used to pursue the real killer. So what you start to see emerge is that jailhouse confessions don't match up to physical evidence. That should have been a real big red flag for investigators. You would think so, but let's look what's happening at the time. Prince George's County State Attorney Arthur A. Marshall Jr. went public with the investigation. He did this in June of 1974, just a few months before his re-election. It's pretty clear that this was politically motivated. It caught the investigators completely off guard. It also surprised the families of the Freeway Phantom victims because he was assuring them there would be multiple arrests in their cases. This only solidifies with me how much I really don't like politicians in general. There were ripple effects to Marshall's going public with this. From what I was able to ascertain in our investigation, and this has not been confirmed, is likely that John Davis also had pieced together that Morris Warren was implicating him in the murders. I feel confident of this because the media was piecing it together, speculating that the Green Vega gang might be tied to the Freeway Phantom murders at the time. If the press could figure it out, I'm pretty sure that John Davis did too. Now, John Davis is a complex character. He led two lives. One personality, he was a dedicated family man. The other, he was a leader of the largest rape gang in the nation's capital's history. This dichotomy made him interesting and scary at the same time. I want to be succinct about John Davis. He's a very dangerous guy. One confidential source told me that he was caught with a hit list in his cell during his trial of the people in the court. The judge, the prosecutors, his own lawyer, people he was planning on killing. 
When they caught him, he tried to eat the list. At the same time, he was having a sexual affair with a teenage girl who was babysitting his own daughter. This was not the guy given to normal behavior. In a letter to the young girl while he was in jail, he said, and I'm quoting here, that he was going to pour hot tar down the throat of Judge Newman's and going to kill everyone else involved in the case against him. Davis was in Lorton Prison at the same time that Morris Warren was. Ironically, it's the same prison where Diane Williams' father was a guard. There were concerns raised at the time that he might try and get his own form of justice, but that just seems like more speculation than actual reality. That is true. What a creepy coincidence. Anyway, the popular thinking was that Davis got word to Warren that it might be in his interest to keep his mouth shut. If that wasn't the case, something changed with Warren. Now, it's entirely possible that Warren finally figured out he was not going to have full immunity in these cases he was going to have to plead guilty to some charges. It's hard to say, and our correspondence with Warren is weird as hell. Here's a tip, kids. Don't write prisoners in jail. Anyway, Warren begins to not cooperate with the authorities. His sister, Cynthia, starts holding news conferences for her brother. She claims her brother is being manipulated by the authorities. The investigators gave him nonverbal attends that allowed him to pinpoint the locations of the crime scenes. We've seen this before. It was definitely the same behavior with Michael Ronning during the murder of Maggie Hume, which we wrote about previously. If you watch and listen to the police around you, you can easily pick up hints that you are close to a crime scene. Though, in that case, it was fairly blatant. I think it is important that a lot of details of the crimes were in the newspapers at the time. So if these guys wanted to describe the victims and the crimes themselves, a lot of that was already out there. Victoria, I thought that too. When I spoke with Ray Bannon, I raised that with him. He summed it up by saying, I've heard people say that they got information from the papers, but I can't see that happening. None of these guys were the kind of guys to read the Washington Post. Reading wasn't a big thing with any of them. Now, it is possible that the information was passed to them by their attorneys, though. What they couldn't discuss were the things that were not in the paper. The green fibers were not public information at the time. The thought that the killer had bathed his victims and redressed them was in no way in the papers at the time. There were hints in the newspaper about a note, but the details of that note were not public until 2006. There's a reason that police held back information. It's to trip up the false confessors. In the middle of all this are the trials that are taking place for the actual Green Vega gang rapes. While the authorities believed that the gang might be responsible for upwards of 300 unsolved rapes in the district, they are ultimately only charged with a few of those crimes, six or seven. The trials themselves were worthy of TV shows. John Davis erupted in court, reading from the Bible, calling all the lawyers, even his own, demons and devils. It is tempting to take you listeners through the trials because it does help frame the Freeway Phantom investigations at the time. I think I'm going to avoid that, though. In written form, it makes a lot of sense, and we do that in our book. In podcast form, I think it just might be confusing and a little boring at times. The short version of this is, by 1975, the prosecution of the gang members had come to a stop, though their appeals dragged on into the 21st century. Regardless of the trials, Morris Warren stops cooperating with the authorities entirely. 
In a Washington Post interview from prison, he essentially recanted every aspect of his cooperation. He admits that he had played the investigators all along and that he had nothing to do with the Freeway Phantom cases. It makes you wonder, when was Morris Warren going to tell the truth? Was it possible that they were involved with the murders or that he manipulated the investigators? What triggered him to actually speak out in the first place? Was it that he saw he was going to spend more time in jail, or was it the fear of John Davis getting him in prison? I think we can get closer to that based on Warren's letters to the courts over the years. We executed a FOIA, Freedom of Information Act request, with the court and obtained some of those letters. On September 27, 1982, in a letter to Judge Rivercombe, Morris Warren wrote, Please be advised in 1974, Mr. Morris Warren told the United States Attorney's Office that he knew who was responsible for the famous Freeway Phantom rapes and murders. In reality, I didn't know anything directly or indirectly about those painfully, his word here, crimes. The truth is, I put those crimes on innocent men out of revenge. It's tempting to say that he is a cunning criminal and was trying to mislead the judge. We have often found that the most simple answer is usually just the truth. A lot of times people like to fabricate elaborate plots and cover-ups by the police. As true crime authors, we hear this a lot. I am sure that that happens, but it seems like most people go to this as a default. The problem I have with this is that it's complicated. It's the nature of most conspiracies. People are pretty simple, and remember, those criminals were not the most brilliant of guys. That's an understatement. Exactly. In this case, I like to think that Fatsy was being honest with the judge. He did it out of revenge. If that's the case, his lies forged one of the largest cross-jurisdictional task force investigations in the history of Washington, D.C. Now picture, if you will, the families of the victims. They are reading about this in the newspapers almost daily, then it evaporates. No one is charged with the murders of their loved ones. Worse, there's an attitude in the Washington MPD that the cases were closed and that the Green Vaga gang were behind the murders. Detective Lewis Richardson, despite the physical evidence in the, against the gang, told the Washington Post that the gang was responsible and did so for years after he retired. An example of this? On the 16th, Warren took us to areas where Brenda Woodard, a homicide victim, had allegedly been kidnapped, raped, and murdered. On May 17th, he showed us the alleged locations dealing with Darlenia Johnson. Although, while showing them where her body was abandoned, he took us to a place where Brenda Crockett's body was found. Richardson gave multiple interviews over the years, claiming that the crimes definitely had been committed by two or more people, which again pointed to the Green Vega gang. With all due respect to Detective Richardson, it appears he simply wanted to close the cases. The fact is that the Green Vega gang had nothing to do with the murders. That was irrelevant. You have to remember, Richardson's reputation was outstanding. His closure rates on murders was in the high 90 percentile. Other officers, including those he trained, took his word as gospel. Richardson's steadfast devotion to the stories of Morris Warren permeates in the Washington MPD to this day. The gang members went to jail, all with the exception of Melvin Gray. At least, we couldn't find any record of him actually being tried. John Davis was released from prison not too long ago for a medical condition. 
Paul Brooks and Paul Fletcher were both released not too long ago as well. It is strange that you have a serial raping gang and they are eventually let out of prison. Not so much with Morris Warren, though. He remains incarcerated in Petersburg, Virginia. We've communicated with him via mail, but he refuses to answer our written questions. He will only do that in person, and the authorities have not granted us permission to interview him. So for now, that's a dead end. Then again, I think that kind of sums up Morris Fatsy Warren, a big dead end. When we spoke with James Trainum, another detective that worked the crimes, he told us the thoughts of the Washington MPD in 2005 and 2006. I got called by a couple of pissed off detectives bitching at me saying we solved those cases. I said, with who? They said, the Green Vega guys. I said, they conned you. That's the way jailhouse informers work. And they're really good at it. They are very smart. You want to believe. God knows I've been taking in by them a few times. I just learned to be a lot more cynical and do a lot more checking. I got to interview former U.S. Attorney Ray Bannon, who served on the task force and prosecuted these criminals. In 2018, he shared his thoughts on the Green Vega slash Freeway Phantom connections. To quote him, Richardson was convinced that they were the same people, the rapists in the Freeway Phantom cases. To this day, I don't know. I really can't tell you that they committed the Freeway Phantom crimes. In the next episode of Tantamount, not every detective in the Washington MPD subscribed to the Green Vega gang theory. One detective, Lloyd Davis, set out on his own and pursued one of the more creepy and incredible suspects to surface so far. He was a man on a mission to kill the District of Columbia's prostitutes in a string of bizarre murders that spanned decades. Join us for Episode 6, The Mysterious Case of Robert Askins. Tantamount is based on the book by the same name written by Blaine Pardo and Victoria Hester. It is available from Wild Blue Press on Amazon.com. You can go to the author's blog at blainepardo.wordpress.com for additional information on these episodes. The Freeway Phantom is an unsolved case. All suspects named in this podcast are presumed innocent until proven guilty. If you have information that could help authorities, please call the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department at 202-727-9099 or via email at unsolved.murder at dc.gov. Tantamount is written and produced by Blaine Pardo and Victoria Hester. Our music was written and performed by Ed Miller. Production assistance provided by Cindy Pardo.